As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Hello there, good to have you back. This is Justin Briley bringing you the podcast that connects you with great Christian thinkers, apologists, theologians, and evangelists so that you can make the case for faith confidently, unapologetically even. Well, Derwin L. Gray is a former NFL football player who, along with his wife Vicky, founded Transformation Church, a multicultural, multi-generational, mission-shaped church in South Carolina. And today, Derwin will be telling me how he came to faith during his football career and why he decided to write his latest book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, and why we're living in these racially divided times. If you want more from Derwin, do check out his website, derwinlgray.com. By the way, thanks to Perry, who rated us with five stars as a podcast, saying this is an important resource to equip all Christians. I'm looking forward to every episode. Rating and reviewing helps others to discover the show. So if you enjoy these conversations, why not do that yourself? And check out all our other great podcasts and resources at premierunbelievable.com. You can even support us there to help more of these conversations reach skeptics and believers. The links are with today's show. For now, let's get into today's conversation. Welcome back to the show. Really pleased to be joined on today's program and for the next few shows from Unapologetic by Derwin L. Gray. He's former NFL football player and along with his wife Vicky, the founding pastor of Transformation Church, a multicultural, multi-generational, mission-shaped church in South Carolina. And his recent book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, is all about what the Bible says and the first Christians knew about racial reconciliation. You can find out more about Derwin at his website, Derwin L. Gray. Dot com. Derwin, welcome along to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Justin. I am uh, I'm a huge fan. I am a huge fan. So I'm honored to be with you. And it's just something about uh, that English accent that just makes everything okay in the world. So <laughs> I dig that, man. Oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. They say that somehow having an English accent to American ears adds about 10 or 20% intelligence, but it's it's not something we've earned at all. It's <laughs> Yeah. So so anyway, it's, it, I, I'm I'm so glad we've been able to bring this together, Derwin, because um, I I've read your book and been watching your ministry for some time, and, and just so so excited by what you're doing in South Carolina. But we'll we'll hear about the church in a moment. T- tell us about your journey because um, you were you know a star NFL player. You came to faith though really during your sporting career, didn't you? I did. Yeah. So. I am uh, I'm one of those guys that is a very unlikely NFL player. So the first football team I tried out for when I was about nine or 10, 
I was so bad, I didn't make the team. And usually every kid makes the team. So I didn't make the team. In middle school, I was eh. In my first two years of high school, I was just okay. But moving into my junior and senior year of high school, I really learned what work ethic was, what discipline was. And this incredible thing called testosterone began to kick in and I began (laughs) to grow. And so for me, football was not just a game. Football was my life. Um, The family I came from, we had a God awareness, but we didn't go to service together or anything. It was uh, it was very dysfunctional. Listen, I love my family, but it was incredibly dysfunctional. And so I knew from an early age, listen, I want to get out of here and going to college. I wasn't going to do it on my grades. I wasn't going to do it on money. The only way I was going to do it is through a football scholarship. And so I worked really hard, ended up getting a football scholarship to Brigham Young University, which is a school that's led by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon church. And so as an unbeliever, I didn't I didn't care about theology. This is what I cared about. I cared about getting an education and how could I play? And maybe one day I could have a chance at the National Football League. So went to BYU. Uh, met this girl named Vicky. I was 18. She was 19. We've been together ever since. But my BYU career <clears throat> was like a fairy tale. Uh, I have banners hanging, hanging in the stadium of me. Like I had a legendary career. I ended up getting drafted. And for me, getting drafted to the NFL was like uh, that would have been my heaven because I knew that if I made money, I could help my family. I could I could show them a better way. I could help them get off of substance abuse. And what actually happened was it didn't help any of that. It actually made it worse. Um, So about three years into it, I find myself as a team captain. Uh, I'm incredibly successful. I've got the beautiful wife. I've got everything. But I also have unforgiveness towards my my, my dad. I also have unforgiveness towards myself. Um, I lived an incredible fear because I knew one day the NFL would end. The NFL actually stands for not for long. So even if you have a 10-year career, you're still in your 30s. What do you do the rest of your life? Mm -hmm. And my whole identity was built on being a football player. And when your life is built on a a house of sand, that sand's going to collapse. But I had a teammate. His name was Steve Grant, but his nickname was the Naked Preacher because every day after practice, he would take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist, and he'd ask my teammates literally, "Uh, do you know Jesus? And in my mind, I'm like, do you know you're half naked, bro? I mean, it was the strangest <laughs> thing to me. So I asked the veterans on the, on the team, what's up with the half naked black man walking around talking about, do you know Jesus? And they said, don't pay any attention to him. That's the naked preacher. And <laughs> one day in the locker room after practice, I see him come and I turn away to avoid him. And he asked me, he said, uh, rookie D Gray, do you know Jesus? And that began a five-year relationship in which the house of cards I built my life on began to collapse. And this good news began to overwhelm me. So on August 2nd, 1997, is my fifth year in the NFL, we were in what's called training camp at a college called Anderson in Anderson, Indiana. And uh, after lunchtime, I went to my dorm room 
And the best way I could describe it, Justin, was is I had this Grand Canyon size void in my soul. It was like an existential crisis, a moral crisis, but underneath it all was a spiritual crisis. My, my soul was longing to meet its maker. So I, I got to my dorm room and uh, this is back in a day where the phones were still on the wall. So mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I called my wife and I said, sweetheart, I want to be more committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. And I was born again at that moment. The only way I could describe it is it was like love just attacked me. Love overwhelmed me. Grace subdued me. Uh, my whole life was built upon how big you are, how fast you are, how good you are. In order to get drafted by an NFL team, they have to look at your playing. They have to look at your film and say, okay, we think he's good enough. We'll draft him. Well, Jesus looked at my game film and it said, sinner. It said, totally depraved. There was nothing I could do for him. And it overwhelmed me that Jesus played the game of life for me, that Jesus sacrificially took my place, that Jesus rose again, not just to forgive me, but to give me his life. And mm. I just I just cried for three nights. I didn't even know I was crying. And I just kept saying, how could you love someone like me? How could you love someone like me? And now I know God could love someone like me because people like me is all he has to love. Mm, mm, and so mm. um, I've been infected with grace and the symptoms have just gotten better ever since. I, I, <laughs> I, am, I am wildly in love with Jesus because there's no one more beautiful. There's no more one more loving and kind. And he was good to me when I didn't even know what good was. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's, it's such a great story. I love I love the way you put it there. I was infected by grace and the symptoms just keep getting better. Um, tell us about the early influences, though, because I know that you've studied, for instance, apologetics under I Norm did. Geisler um, yeah. uh, early on. Um, so so obviously that kind of was important at that stage. But interestingly, in the book, you also talk about the fact that your early influences kind of I think you came to realize they were primarily white uh, influences mm -hmm. and so on. And and I'd be interested in knowing how the journey took you on as you kind of perhaps started to realize there was a, a broader theological kind of diversity out there in terms of ethnicity and so on. Yeah, so so um, I grew up, uh, I didn't think I was very smart. I scored a 16 on my ACT to get into college, which is not very high. Um, I never wanted to write books because I didn't even like reading books. Um, I'm a compulsive stutterer. So being a communicator, preacher was never a thought. Uh, but when God redeemed me, he redeemed all of me. So my family in Texas had a quasi Jehovah's Witness kind of thing. My grandmother was a part of the Jehovah's Witness, but she would cuss and smoke. So they kicked her out. And so she kind of created her own quasi thing. And she mm -hmm. kind of um, held that over us. <clears throat> and then when I went to BYU, several people in my wife's family are Mormon. And a lot of my friends are Mormon as well. And we love Latter-day Saints. And, and so when we first came to faith, my wife came to faith about six months before me. And both of us, because we're athletes and we love to learn, we're like, we got to know this God who so loved us. And he's got a playbook called the Bible. And as we studied it, we began to learn that, okay, there are some major differences 
And then that's when I got introduced to Dr. Norman Geisler, which Dr. Geisler, uh, I just thank, I thank that man so much. Uh, not only was he married for 62 years, I, I sometimes I would just want to go hang out at his house just to see how he and his wife would navigate life. But he taught me a love for Thomistic philosophy. Uh, mm-hmm. He taught me a love for classical apologetics. And so mm-hmm. classical apologetics and Thomistic philosophy actually makes you, in my opinion, a better exegete of scripture because you learn how to think. And so I got infatuated with learning worldviews and apologetics and, and philosophy. And, and then, so I find myself six or seven years into my faith and I'm like, okay, so from what I'm learning, a lot of the first great theologians of the early church were North African, Tertullian, um, Augustine, Athanasius, and I'm going, where, why, why am I not being exposed to other ethnic groups of theology? And then something else began to take place. When a black author would write a theology book, it was called black theology. If a Latino author would write a book, it would be called Latin theology. But if a European man wrote a book, it's theology. And so I began to see this underlying um soft form of white supremacy like no well, our theology is theology this other theology is an ethnic theology <clears throat> and so i'm i'm grateful for my doctoral advisor scott mcknight i'm grateful for nt Wright. Uh, both those men's fingerprints are all over my work but i'm also grateful for dr tony evans i'm grateful for dr john Perkins. Uh, I'm grateful for Asian and Latino theologians, women theologians as as well. So um, there's a reason why God has an every nation, tribe and tongue family, because every nation, tribe and tongue images forth the glory of God. And our particular situatedness in the world gives us a particular perspective. That's why we need to be humble enough to look at the multifaceted diamond of reality, of truth, from the eyes of our brothers and sisters together, everyone achieves more. And so we don't want to be color blind. We want to be color blessed. Yeah. I love the T-shirt that you're wearing. You've pointed to that there. Color blind, crossed out, color blessed in its place. We're going to talk about that in, in an upcoming episode of the show because we're, we're going to really dig into your book, um, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, which very much comes out of your experience of pastoring Transformation Church. And you, you share so many helpful stories and anecdotes from your experience there, as well as obviously the theology of how this all comes back to the Bible. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Just tell us briefly again the story of Transformation Church itself, though. Obviously, you, you were you and your wife came to Christ. At what point did the idea of starting a church occur to you? And, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was a much bigger thing than you ever anticipated. Oh, the gosh. You know, one of the <laughs> one of the things that my wife and I often say is this is if God showed you everything he was going to do you would run in the opposite direction as fast as you could. So neither my wife nor I, we, we, we didn't know nothing about vocational ministry. We didn't know nothing about church. All we knew was this, is that if Jesus could forgive us, if Jesus could redeem us, if Jesus could love us, if Jesus could be who he is to us, 
that he wants to be that to everybody else. And we need to let everybody know. And so going into the football season in 1999, uh, both my wife and I sensed like, I'm done. I don't want to play anymore. And of course, family and friends don't understand that. They're like, what do you mean? And I was like, I just don't want to play anymore. They're like, why? I said, I don't know, but it's time to close this chapter in my life. And around that time, I got a, uh, an invitation to speak at a youth event in Columbia, South Carolina. And I just remember crying in the shower saying, Lord, you know I'm a compulsive stutterer. Why would you send me to go? I'll pray. Um, I'll help find someone to go. We'll give money. But please don't send me. Don't send me. You know how painful speaking is. And Justin, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I just sensed God saying, if I can raise my son from the dead, I can raise your tongue to talk. But in order to see this happen, you have to trust me and go. So my wife and I, and at the time, our daughter was about three. We drove down to Columbia, South Carolina from Charlotte. It was a baseball stadium full of teenagers. And I had uh, note cards and they were falling out of my pockets. And I just shared my testimony, even though I didn't know what a testimony was. And at the end of it, a bunch of kids came to Jesus. And the phone began to ring off the hook the next day. It was like, hey, this NFL player got saved. He's got a great testimony. He understands the gospel. Uh, let's invite him to speak. And so within that first engagement, that year, I spoke 150 times. My wife has the wow. gift of administration, so she was organizing everything. And people were saying to us, Derwin, you're an evangelist. And I said, wait a minute. I don't know what that is, but I don't have that. They're like, no, no, it means a <laughs> a person who loves to share the good news. I was like, okay. And so my wife and I developed uh, an organization called One Heart at a Time Ministries because we wanted to touch one heart at a time. And as we were doing that, one of my neighbors came over out of the blue and said, hey, uh, my wife told me that your wife said you guys are starting a ministry. Here's $3,000. Man, I cried in the middle of the street. Then the next day, another neighbor done the exact same thing. I cried again and we're like, okay, I think it's what God wants us to do. So my wife was the organizational end of it. I was kind of the spearhead. And after about five years, we both got a little disenfranchised because of this. Everywhere we went, it was very segregated. Majority white or all black. And we said, okay, so as we're reading the Bible, we see the early church was Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles is everybody else. It was a colorful church. And of course it should be because God made a covenant with Abraham to give him a family. Jesus keeps that covenant through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so I began to ask pastors, black ones, white ones, Latino ones, Asian ones, why is our churches so segregated along ethnic lines when our neighborhoods are not? And I got racist, cowardice answers. And I sense God said, don't criticize, create. So that began the journey of us formulating over the years of what would it look like to have a New Testament community of faith where Jesus is King and Lord, his grace, his gospel is central. And that his life, death and resurrection is not just an individual ticket, but it's an invitation into a redeemed, blood-bought, spirit-filled family that now is maturing to replicate the ministry and mission of Jesus, to be his hands and his feet, that the kingdom of God has come, not in all its fullness, 
but we are to shine his mm -hmm. light so that mm -hmm. he would be glorified. So that's when the idea of planning a multi-ethnic church came into being. And then that's kind of when all hell broke loose, broke loose too, because people were saying, you can't do this. Like you are in the state of South Carolina. Do you know that the first shots of the civil war were in South Carolina? Do you know that most black people in America can trace their DNA to the ports of Charleston's where enslaved people got off of those wretched slave boats? Like there's a reason why Sunday is the most segregated time in America. And I heard all of these excuses. And as a person who didn't grow up in the church, I was so naive to believe that the same Holy Spirit that rose Christ from the dead, that blew life on those early disciples in the upper room is still around and we were gonna trust him to get it done. And it's amazing, 12 years in, a lot of those same people are now being mentored by us mm. to build mm. gospel-centered, yeah. multi-ethnic churches. I, I think the Lord is looking for people who are naive enough to still believe that he parts the Red Seas. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank goodness you were so naive because often God uses naivety um, to great advantage because often, yeah, experience can also breed cynicism, can't it? Um, we're we're going to explore the story of Transformation Church in, in future episodes as well. But just before we kind of come to the end of this one, just paint a picture for where you see the culture right now <laughs> and how that's affecting the church. Wow. Because... Um, I mean, it feels like debates around racial justice, you know, the term CRT, anti-racism, it's all just exploded recently. Um, I guess George Floyd was a, a tipping point yeah. in all of this. Um, where, where, how do you see things? Are they getting worse? Why, why is the rhetoric ramped up so much in recent years? Yeah, so I can speak of that in terms of the American context. So, uh, number one, demonic forces are busy. The evil hordes are busy. And unfortunately, many in the church are allowing evil hordes of demonic darkness to influence. That's number one. Uh, number two, discipleship in the American church, um, as it pertains to understanding the kingdom of God gospel, as it pertains to discipleship and ethnic reconciliation through the cross, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 is very, very poor. Thirdly, many pastors were influenced by the homogeneous unit principle, which says uh, people who look alike, think alike, same socioeconomic status, you build churches that way. So you don't talk about race. You don't talk about those things. And so while the church was being silent, late night cable news in America was discipling generations of people to the point that People believe their late night news person more than they believe their pastors. And then lastly, the racialized culture in America has affected the church more than the church has affected the racialized culture. So those four things. And then lastly, mm. uh, respectfully, President Donald Trump was not the cause of all of this. President Donald Trump was the outgrowth of what certain people in America wanted. He didn't cause it. He was the outgrowth. And so he made it fashionable to speak xenophobic. He made it fashionable um, to have this brawler mentality to, um, 
when I was a kid and I remember listening to Ronald Reagan and other political statements communicate, it was like adults communicating on behalf of the betterment of America. Now, it's like a, a Jerry Springer episode. I call it the Jerry Springerfication of America. Everybody's arguing, everybody's debating, and it's for their side to win instead of what's best for the United States of America. There's a reason why an eagle has a left wing and a right wing for balance. Now, people are so extreme and so angry and so visceral. And here's what a lot of American Christians don't know, is in the 2020 campaign, 50% of the Facebook ads that were religious in nature coming against the Democrats were Russian trolls. They were Russian troll forms, 50%. So when you look mm -hmm. at the American church, right, there are some incredible movements with buildings and campuses, and we're growing and individuals are getting saved, but QAnon is out of control. Christian nationalism mm. is out of control. Mm. There are some unhealthy things. So I think you combine all of that and you make this incredibly toxic culture. And what I'm, mm. what I'm proposing, not only in our ministry, but in my book and in my life is that Jesus's people are not donkeys or elephants. We are the party of the lamb. We are to not be partisan. We're to be prophetic. That God's truth speaks prophetically against all forms of injustice, from babies in the womb to people on their way to the tomb, from refugees and asylum seekers in Ukraine to Latin America to Syria. Um, all of those issues are to be prophetically proclaimed through the church not partisanship. And so I'm actually very optimistic about the church in America, Justin, but it's not going to come from the movements that we know. It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. on the margins. It's on the fringes. It's churches like Transformation Church and all due respect mm -hmm. that is, that is multi-ethnic mm -hmm. that where a few weeks ago I was in Washington, D.C., uh, with immigration reform, sp speaking to politicians. We have a free grocery store. Um, issues of justice, discipleship, and evangelism go all hand in hand. So mm -hmm. I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful because hope got up out of that tomb and his name is Jesus. And he's looking for people who will not sell their souls for a bowl of, of soup, but to be... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Prophetic. So, yeah. Preach it, Pastor. Preach it. <laughs> um, yeah. We're going to keep talking um, very soon uh, on the next edition of Unapologetic. Uh, we're going to look at kind of what the Bible really has to say about racial reconciliation, because that's where your new book begins on this, Derwin. But thank you for joining me on this episode. Uh, God bless you, and I'll see you next time. Sounds good. Hey, thank you for being with us. Links to Derwin's website are with the show notes. And next time, Derwin will share on what the Bible says about racial reconciliation. Don't forget to share this podcast with others. Rate and review it wherever you're listening from. It helps others to discover the show. And if you'd like to help us financially bring these resources to more people, then do click the donate link with today's show too. Or go to our website, premierunbelievable.com. For now, thanks and see you next time. 
You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources, and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.